This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Chris, I mean, I guess not as always, right? We, we've true, we've yeah. missed you, buddy. It's been a couple of episodes, but it's great to hear your voice again. How you doing? Uh, we're doing good here at the Ekimoff household. We had a new roommate come along about a, a month ago. So a uh, baby girl was born in mid-October. So uh, mom is healthy. Baby is healthy. I'm doing just fine, right? I'm playing the dad role as best I can and getting a lot of great advice from some of our colleagues and folks who support the podcast. Thank you, Kurt, for the shout out on the last episode. I appreciate it because I listened to every episode. My wife <laughs> may have not heard it. I will say maybe she's a, a couple episodes behind dealing with all the new things in the house, but we're doing great. We're doing great. Yeah, good. I'm, I'm glad everyone's doing well and really glad to have you back. Appreciate you carving out some time while you are still technically on paternity leave. I assume it's just because we have a great guest today, not because you missed me, but you know, either way, it's really good. Whatever you want to think, Kurt, we'll put it there. So yeah, we're really excited to be joined by Rebecca Fike here today. We're happy to talk to somebody with a lot of experience that really fits right into the lane of insecurities. We've been honored to have many esteemed guests who, who've had some significant time serving in the commission as well as being practitioners outside of their SEC experience and Rebecca fits right into that. Uh, Rebecca is a Dallas-based partner at Vincent & Elkins, where she focuses on SEC and white-collar defense and government and internal investigations. Before joining V&E, Rebecca served as senior counsel in the SEC's Division of Enforcement for nearly 10 years. At the SEC, she played leading roles in several top five national priority investigations and was recognized with the annual Enforcement Director's Award for Excellence in Investigative Work as well as the inaugural Performance Incentive Bonus Award for demonstrating an extraordinary and rare level of performance that significantly surpasses the requirements of the job. It is worth noting that Rebecca's tenure at the SEC included more than one year under the current chair, Gary Gensler, and Director Grewal. Given that experience, according to her bio on V&E, Rebecca brings clients a current insider's perspective on how to best guide them through the reality of today's SEC investigations. And obviously, Kurt, that's why we're so excited to have Rebecca join us. Rebecca, welcome to Insecurities. Thank you so much. Our uh, BD team will be so excited if you read that quote. (laughs) <laughs> we, I'd like to say that Kurt and I are very creative in, in describing our guests, but we usually follow where good paths have already they, been tried. They made it easy for us this time. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Rebecca, we want to jump right into it, right? Like we talked about, it's been a pretty short window since you've left the commission, and and we're always interested in speaking with all of our guests about how they feel the current state of play is in today's SEC, whether the division of enforcement specifically or other avenues as well. Where do you see the commission at today in terms of its priorities or, or any change in tactics that may have been occurring in the past few months? Definitely. Yeah, I, I would definitely say it's a whole new asset Chair Gensler's leadership I'm glad I had the, the year there under him and Director Gruel before coming out to private practice, because I think that does give you a different approach or a different insight into the pressures that staff are facing, you know, the, the tools staff have, the goals and sort of overall agency pers- perspective. I would say I, I've seen changes both on kind of the macro agency level, as well as sort of the micro staff level. At an agency level, 
I know we always talk about SEC priorities, but you always have to start saying that basically everything's a priority. <laughs> There's not an area, I feel like, of the securities law that is not getting some additional time and resources from court fin, from rulemaking, from exam, from in, in enforcement. They're busy on all fronts. I also think there's a strong motivation agency-wide to bring cases wherever a rule is broken. If you have find, if you have found a rule that has been broken and there are facts that support it, there is a lot of emphasis on bringing that case kind of regardless of in, investor harm, more as a message to the market, a message to market participants. It's there's more orders, at least it seems like there are more orders in the last you know, year or two where there's an actual you know, statement in the facts that they don't have any facts supporting a finding of an investor harm. But this rule was broken. And because it was broken, they're bringing the action. And that is a bit of a change. And as defense counsel, that's a bit of a change and un- understanding that Odds are, if there's facts to support a charge, there's probably going to be a charge. So let's start working on the nuances of what that is, what the allegations are, what the penalty is, and less on convincing them to close a case. The micro level kind of trickled down from that. The timelines are a lot shorter. I think the staff is under additional pressure. I certainly felt that when I was there in my last year. I think the SEC has stepped up their document review, their data and analytics resources, they have more tools or are using more of the tools that they have. There's also a little less flexibility at the staff level. I still would say the staff attorney is the most powerful person you're going to work with in the course of an investigation. But given agency-wide pressures and oversight, there's seemingly less discretion than I think there used to be. That's interesting. I mean, I wonder how that discretion is maybe playing out in terms of charging decisions. I mean, is that animating some of this idea that (laughs) if they think there's a chargeable offense, they're going to charge it, even if they can't necessarily point to or quantify the the harm? Is that what you mean by pressure? I do. I do. I I feel like in my earlier years, I was at the commission from 2012 to 2022. So span multiple administrations. And in the earlier years, oftentimes where there wasn't Harm, you would, and if in working with, let's you know, strong defense counsel, good corporate citizen, fixing their wrongs, moving forward. Sometimes you would make a decision to close that investigation, even though it did have a, a check by a certain charge. Yes, they did violate this, but they did X, Y, and Z. And while I'm sure that, well, I'm not sure. I assume that still happens in some cases, and we don't get to see that because we, we don't see the commission's closed investigations. We certainly are seeing quite a lot more cases brought where they're stating they did not find harm or did not find error, but they did find an insufficient procedure for reporting. And so they're going to bring that disclosure controls and procedures case, even though at the same time they're saying, we are not saying there's anything wrong with the disclosures that came out of these disclosure controls and procedures. And I think when you see that, that's a case that in the past probably would have been closed. And I think as staff, given the pressure of timelines, of cases, of messaging to the market, if you found facts that support a charge, I do think there's quite a lot of pressure to bring that. And it's not just pressure. It's truly a perspective. I think Chair Gensler's perspective of the SEC is that it should speak and speak often. And when you find a charge, you bring it. And maybe you have a lower penalty if the company has done everything right going forward. But you have a charge, you bring it. 
Yeah, it's, it's almost like an unspoken return to the glass windows policy. It, it, it feels that way anyway. And I think we see it with the number of enforcement actions continuing to go up, up. E- even during Chair Clayton's time at the commission, we saw the numbers pretty much continue to, to kind of tick up. We got a sneak peek a couple of weeks ago from Chair Gensler at the Securities Enforcement Forum, and he announced that there were, I think, 740 actions last year. I forget the number of standalone, but both were ticks up. So I think that's kind of getting at, at your point, Rebecca, that they are kind of bringing almost whatever whatever they can bring, right? Whatever the law would allow, I suppose. So it's an interesting shift, perhaps, or maybe it's just a continuation of a theme. But I, I know one of the things that they tend to focus on, one of the programmatic priorities every year is insider trading. And that's something that you think a lot about. I know you've been speaking about it recently. And we want to talk to you a little bit about that. It's something that our listeners are always interested in. I think we've had, I don't know, Chris, what, maybe two episodes where we've really kind of dug into insider trading. I was going to say attempted to explain insider trading and, and some of the nuance there, of course. Yeah. So we're excited to get your perspective as someone who's kind of been on the other side investigating, maybe bringing these cases in the not too distant past. But first, just to sort of orient any new listeners or to remind folks out there, what is insider trading? How do you think about it? What is the conduct that is prohibited under the federal securities laws? So at its core, insider trading is transacting in, whether that's buying, selling, gifting, transacting in, securities in breach of a fiduciary duty or relationship of trust while possessing material non-public information. And there is a scienter element. You need to have knowledge or recklessness can be Mm -hmm. enough in breaching your duty and transacting with that material non-public information. Yeah, it's a good call out on the gifting part. Uh, It's something that often goes overlooked, but I know I've dealt with that question over the last year or so. When is it appropriate to to gift shares if you are in possession of MNPI? I guess broadly the answer is probably it's not, right? But the devil's in the details. (laughs) Are a lot of people offering you shares, Kurt, at a holiday season? Are you speaking more professionally? No, no, unfortunately, it's not me. Or maybe fortunately, it's not me. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Uh, okay, so so I think one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast before is that this definition is pretty broad. It can capture a lot of different conduct. And so I guess I wonder, are there particular kinds of cases that are really interesting to the staff? Do they think about this in terms of like buckets? Is the staff just looking for the next big headline that's going to be like above the fold in the journal? I mean, what's sort of motivating the folks who are actually investigating these potential cases? Yeah, I mean, I would say you're always interested in having a case that's above the fold in the journal, but those don't come along (laughs) often. So I don't, that's not usually your focus at, at the start. But so it's a great question. The way I like to think about it is there's two ways to sort of find and charge insider trading. And there's a event-based insider trading in investigations. And those are kind of the traditional way the SEC has pursued insider trading charges. It's the way FINRA finds and investigates yep. insider trading sort of potential charges. It's where you see a blip in the stock price up or down, and you look at who traded in that stock before and after that event. It's event-based. And FINRA will often run that down. They'll reach out for timelines, for emails, things like that. And then they might make a referral over to the Division of Enforcement. Enforcement digs in as well. Maybe you end up bringing a charge against an individual. Sometimes it might be multiple individuals that they find. 
but it's a very, you know, it's a lot of work for one trade or maybe a group of trades and maybe one person or a small group of people. And by the time you've got the FINRA referral, you've done your own investigation and you've prosecuted, you're often a year, two, three out from the actual mm-hmm. trade. And insider trading, even though it's something the SEC is certainly very focused on and people in private practice and in the corporate world are very focused on it, it's not usually very lucrative. Individual trades often don't net you that much more than you know what the market has gotten. And that difference between them, sometimes it's ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, which I mean I would happily take. That matters to me. But to the SEC that's also charging corporations at hundred million dollar plus penalties, sometimes those aren't worth the, the staff time and resources to pursue. So there's always been that event base. Currently, the commission is working more towards market-based approach to insider trading. So using their, and I know we're going to talk about data analytics, but using the tools and experts that they have to be able to find you know, schemes and rings and groups that are over many stocks, many time periods, and finding these insider trading schemes that are netting 60, 70, $80 million over a year or two. And so I think they're still always going to need to pursue those individual event-based trades. That still matters. It matters that the person sitting at the desk of maybe a broker or a company's insider information is not using that. But there is certainly a shift and I think a desire to bring more of these broader cases kind of speaking to the market of, hey, even if you've got a pretty sophisticated setup, we can still find you. And that is the headline cases. I think, too, what interests me in insider trading cases over time is that you still get what I'll call run-of-the-mill insider mm-hmm. trading activity. And as a CPA, right, that's near and dear to, to my focus is if you have reporting information before reports are made public, you should not be entertaining activity in the stock that information relates to or other stocks. And again, I'm not uh, providing legal advice here, but it's shocking to me in some cases when you see the assistant controller who saw the earnings report 15 days beforehand, either on his or her own or telling a family member to go out and, and buy or sell. It's, I, I don't know, I don't know, Rebecca, if you've got a comment on why that continues to happen. Is it too easy? Is, is the, the juice out there for somebody to squeeze? What kind of motivations or maybe in your experience, have you seen those kind of not complex cases really continue to occur? I, I think it just that would be more of almost a philosophical discussion of human nature. Human nature. I, think, <laughs> I think money is just always motivating. I also think in this big, wide world, you can feel pretty invisible as one mm-hmm. individual actor. And I think when there are people that when you think you can get away with something, you're going to try to do it. And that is why it's exactly right. It's still important and why the commission absolutely still is looking at those event-based trades. I mean, FINRA is still absolutely looking at those event-based trades because you do need to tap on the shoulder of that assistant controller every now and then and be like, hey, like we may be looking at $80 million hack to trade schemes, but we're also still looking at you. Yeah, And that definitely still happens. So I, I thought Chris was just looking for a segue to talk about his favorite thing, the fraud triangle. That's right. But man, <laughs> Opportunity, motivation, rationalization. Yeah, there Kurt, we go. We'll <laughs> cover that five. We've had more episodes on that than we have on insider trading, which is definitely- Maybe even so. more than Reg BI. I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, it's been a minute. <laughs> well, Rebecca, right? We've talked a little bit about some of those simple cases, we'll call them. One area that I think I've definitely learned a lot about in the past year and a half, and I know Kurt and I have done a couple episodes on relate to the famed 10B51 trading plans. Uh, and 
I'm not going to say that the Insecurities Podcast is influencing policy, but it was great to see the commission take on some thoughts about 10B51 plans a, a few months after one of our original episodes. So we'd love to hear your comments on where the 10B51 trading plan focus is today in terms of what the SEC might think or your recent experience both in the commission and outside. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think one thing that we're really talking to clients a lot about and that I think they know, but maybe haven't thought about in these terms, is that the 10B51 plan is an affirmative defense to insider trading. It doesn't mean you can't still be investigated for insider trading. It doesn't mean you can't still be charged with insider trading. It just provides you with an affirmative defense. And so all everything I said about the simple as I can make it definition of insider trading still applies to 10B51 plan. So entering into that 10B51 plan, to transact in securities, even if it's in the future and under certain conditions, if you have material non-public information when you enter into that plan, you are still committing insider trading. And with the data the SEC can process, with the fact that 10B51 plans now must be published or dis disclosed, they are absolutely looking for cases to talk to the market to say, 10B51 plans are not a complete shield. And they've had the Pizer case fairly recently. They had Cheetah Mobile last year, I believe, of cases where executives entered into 10B51 plans with MNPI and then traded and were then charged with insider trading. And when you read the facts of the case, they sound like insider trading. They aren't, I don't think, kind of shocking that those cases were brought, but it is the first time those two cases where the SEC has charged insider trading where a 10B51 plan was in play. I think before that provided just more gray and it was harder to sift through. And as more data is available and 10B51 plans are disclosed, I would expect to see more of those. All right. So let's take a step back. I mean, we've talked about what is insider trading, what kinds of cases are interesting to the staff, how they're thinking about 10B51 cases or fact patterns in particular. But I, I mean, I want to know who actually investigates these cases, right? I mean, we imagine just like the SEC, like, quote, the staff on the other side doing stuff, right? But who is it? Is it catch as catch can? Is it really cabined to the market abuse unit, which I think sort of became like, I've heard them described as like the Navy SEALs of insider trading investigations. At least when Dan Hawk used to be there, I think that was the reputation they wanted, right? And certainly we saw a lot of cases coming out of the Philadelphia regional office, which were certainly interesting. So I don't know, how does it work? How do these cases get kind of farmed out to different folks on the staff around the SEC? Yes, that's a great question. I love, I mean, I think you just made being in a market abuse unit staff attorney sound about as sexy as it possibly can. So I, that was a huge What plug. could be cooler? I mean, at least on this podcast, <laughs> yeah. that's, so they're like they, rock stars. They definitely have the blazers, right? <laughs> when they're kicking down the doors. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> that and our little plastic badge that we can try to flash. Yes, no, it's, a, it's a good question. So insider trading can be investigated by anyone in, in enforcement. And what it really depends on is where the case came from or how it hmm. originated. So if an insider trading allegation comes through this kind of a traditional tip complaint re referral, it'll go through that TCR system. I think sometimes if it's maybe particularly complex or it's touching on an, is an issue that market abuse kind of is looking at, it might get routed to them. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, especially in these event-based ones we've been talking about, like that assistant con controller trading around an event in the stock, that'll usually just get routed to staff. So what, whether that's in the region the company's in 
maybe there's a certain office that needs some cases, just the traditional way cases get assigned out. So really any, as we call them, gen pop, kind of our traditional staff attorneys who aren't in a specialized unit, any of them can and do investigate insider trading. Where the market abuse unit particularly comes in is where they and how they originate cases. So the market abuse unit is where you're going to get those market-based initiated in investigations, where they're using that, the data analytics, they're using experts that they've hired in that group, and they're finding these some of these more complex, multi-period, multi-stock, multi-trader schemes. And then they're generally going to in- investigate those because they have the tools to do so. And they do still get the FINRA referrals and that would get staffed out just kind of, like I said, at the start, where it's just the traditional regional or needs or in interest of a particular staff attorney. You talked about some of those identification methods and, and teased up top about these analytics tools that are now at the SEC. I feel like you can't go to an SEC program or event without them touting the software, the acronyms, the algorithms, <laughs> right, that are out there. And to a financial guy like me, and I'll, I'll make sure Kurt doesn't roll his eyes too hard, but it does make sense. And, and we use those kind of simple examples of the assistant controller trading out of the money call options in a stock that they've never traded before. It's hard to not use the word anomaly when you're talking about that. But I'd like to hear a little bit more about what you think the SEC is is utilizing from an analytics perspective on some of those more complex cases where we're one or two trades away from the information or, or some of the other ways that insider trading is identified through the power of data with the SEC. Yeah, so I do think some of it's shrouded in a bit of mystery and Secrecy is, I'm sure, going to stay that way. They basically want everyone to know that they can see everything everywhere all at once and then (laughs) pull it together. Picture like the red string and pins on a cork board. And they certainly are pressing the data analytics angle. But we're seeing in the cases that they're bringing that they certainly have some pretty impressive tools to pull together facts that just one person sitting in their office looking at trading, I don't think you could possibly find a pattern there. Um, I do know they have a tool, which was, I believe, an internally developed tool called Artemis. And Artemis mm-hmm. does stand for something, but it is a tortured acronym that no one even in the unit remembers. But I believe she's goddess of the hunt, which is why they tried to fit it into that. But it <laughs> analyzes patterns and relationships among multiple traders over multiple periods of time. And it uses the CAT, the Consolidated uh, Audit Trail, data for that work. And CAT data has all trades, orders, and quotes in the U.S. equity markets. And so Artemis can somehow, through its robot brain, go through all of that various data and start to find those patterns. And I think one of the most important layers of it is that multiple time period, multiple trades, multiple traders, and be able to start pulling together, again, anomalies, just ways people are making money consistently that maybe is not supported by st- statistics and start pulling that together. And then there are a lot of specialists in the unit they've hired in the last couple of years, like al- algorithmic traders, quantitative analysts, previous industry in- insiders, and they can use that expertise to look at what Artemis is flagging and then start an investigation from, from there. And for those of you playing the uh, insecurities acronym BINGO at home, Artemis stands for Advanced Relational Trading Enforcement Metrics Investigation System. Uh, So 
Kudos to whoever out there at the commission came up with that. I'm sure there were many storied uh, nights and note cards of putting words together for that. There's a lot of synonyms in there just to get to Artemis. Yeah, right. I, I don't know what you're complaining about, Rebecca. I think that rolls off the tongue. I mean, it, it, really, it was almost obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, you described kind of this multiple time period, multiple trader type evaluation. And I know, Kurt, we'll get a lot more listens now when I say the next phrase. That sounds a lot like artificial intelligence or AI. Click, click, which, click, click, click. There we go. Boom, boom. Everyone's listening now. And that's an interesting avenue, right? We talk about AI from an operational perspective at firms and businesses and in actual trading, but here we're thinking of AI as an evaluative tool or an identifying investigative tool. The SEC and, and specifically the, the division enforcement is commenting and, and in some cases might be described as worried about artificial intelligence these days. So how do you kind of see that AI bent playing out for the market and, and for the investigative avenues of the SEC today? For sure. Well, I would say couple of things. One, I think the SEC is very open to tools that help them investigate other people using tools badly. <laughs> so they, they aren't the ones being you know, investigated. They're not the ones trading. But I do think here, especially the AI component, the artificial intelligence component is helping them identify potential violations of the federal se securities laws. And then a human staff attorney is taking that information and bringing the investigation forward. And I think, and again, I don't know, I haven't asked them, but I would imagine, I mean, I would take what Artemis has flagged as a potential tip over almost any tip that comes through that TCR website that because anyone can submit a tip. Anyone can have any you know, reason or thought into, hey, you should look into this. And then it is a, a person's judgment deciding whether or not to dig in. So you're always initiating an investigation on kind of nothing more than maybe some red flags someone else has seen, maybe some experience someone has had, but they don't have the full story. So investigations are always started without a full understanding of the situation, but you just need to have enough to ask some questions. And I think Artemis, our goddess of the hunt, can find situations to ask questions. Hmm. And then the staff is taking over from there. Yeah, I like this concept of the the sort of hybrid approach, right? You use a tool to kind of set you down a path, but then there's old school sort of investigation or investigative techniques going on. Roll up your sleeves, go talk to some folks, pull records if you need to, send subpoena, whatever you've got to do, right? The way that we, I think we typically imagine investigations going. And you know, I think one of the tools that the SEC also uses, again, thinking beyond their own sort of proprietary data analytics tools is coordinating with their counterparts at other regulatory or enforcement agencies. I think in this space, insider trading, FINRA is, is probably one of their larger counterparts that they lean on for these investigations. Over at FINRA, they have a, a market investigations team that is really dedicated to finding potential insider trading investigations. And then FINRA just has access to tons and tons of trading data that they crunch using their own tools to try to find some of these anomalous patterns. So I guess I'm wondering if you can help us kind of put these puzzle pieces together because y y there's a version of the story where it feels like maybe they're doing things in parallel and who knows you know, what the left or the right hand is doing, but, but maybe the coordination is better than that. So how, how does it actually work? Well, I can speak for how I got FINRA referrals and kind of worked with them. And I think for the most part, FINRA has a largely event-based approach. And so the SEC does not spend as much time looking for that. That is something that FINRA's markets and investigations teams, they are looking for. And they do that initial workup. 
So they also will reach out to traders. They'll request a time a timeline, maybe key documents and key emails, brokerage records. So they'll start putting together that picture. And then once they think they have enough that there is more likely than not insider trading has occurred, they'll refer that over to enforcement to then take from there. So the idea being enforcement is not initiating that and doing that initial work. And then FINRA also, once they've referred it, they're no longer calling the trader. And so you sort of hand, handed it off. What is less clear to me and will be interesting to see over time, given that FINRA does have so much data and they certainly have their own funding and tools and experts, I don't know how they're kind of dividing up that market-based approach and search for potential cases. That's certainly something the market abuse unit in the SEC is very focused on. I am certain they talk with FINRA often. I talk with FINRA fairly often just as a staff attorney. So maybe there's different ways they are looking for cases. So while I don't know that there's official coordination, I'm certain just given how often you talk to people at FINRA, there is some understanding of we're kind of looking at this and you're looking at that. But at the end of the day, FINRA can't bring those larger cases. I mean, they, they do have their own toolbox that they, they can use for certain market participants who are regulated by them, mm-hmm. but they can't bring these kind of larger civil cases against in, individual traders. And so at some point, CC does have to take, take over. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I guess, especially if you're dealing with a person or an entity that isn't regulated by FINRA, well, maybe they spotted it, but they're going to have to hand it off, right? So yeah. at least those cases, maybe it's a little more obvious where the lines are in terms of who should pick it up. All right, let's pivot a little bit because I know insider trading isn't the only thing that you spend your time thinking about. And there are a couple other, I'll call them hot topics, at least from a, a regulatory or enforcement standpoint that that have been on your mind. One of which is ESG, and we're going to come on to that in just a second. But also, I, I think you're tracking some things that are developing with respect to reporting companies' disclosure obligations. So tell us a little bit about the landscape there and and maybe what you are tracking or find interesting at the moment uh, from a disclosure standpoint. Definitely. I think the the disclosure area is another kind of everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah. It's, there are many more things now that companies need to disclose, whether that's something within their K's or Q's or something they now have to attach to them, like the 10B51 trading plans and a copy of the company's insider trading policy, which was not something you had to disclose prior. And so a big part of what we're doing with with clients and keeping an eye out for is a lot of these reporting technical violation cases and making sure that companies are ready and doing everything right on the front end for those. For example, the SEC recently announced how many it was. It was several together, Section 16 reporting. Mm -hmm. So those are things you don't usually see that often. You might see a Section 16 violation, like failing to file a Form 4, failing to note timely that one of your Section 16 insiders traded in the company stock. So you have to file that. Companies do. It's a routine thing. Even when I was at the staff, we often found cases that if you're looking at a company for other reasons, you would go pull all their Section 16 filings, and sometimes they're late, sometimes it's like a month later. That was not usually something you kind of added to your charge column. Maybe it was because you were negotiating down off of fraud charges or something, but it, it wasn't seen as a large charge that you would add to a case. It's like, oh, we have them for fraud. We don't need to throw in like a Section 16. Right. And it's certainly that I saw was very rarely, if ever, a standalone charge. 
So maybe you do have fraud and they are just chronically late on their form fours. And you're like, hey, this is a repeated problem. This is worth calling a, attention to. But earlier this year, there was a you know long string of both companies and in, in, individuals charged only with Section 16 filing violations. And the c- companies were kind of swept up in the action as, quote unquote, causing the Section 16A violations violations because they weren't, you know, they didn't have sufficient internal controls and procedures to ensure their insiders file. And so it's, those are smaller charges, but they're still charges. I mean, there are individuals who have now been charged by the SEC with violating a federal securities law and the fines, you know, range between, I think the smallest was maybe 60,000 up to a hundred or 200,000. So not, you know, jaw dropping amounts, but a lot of these are individuals being charged with those fines. And that is a lot. And so those areas there's several others, internal controls and procedures. And another one where early on in my tenure, I don't think I ever saw a standalone, a 13A, 15A charge that maybe you added on. Like if you have a large accounting restatement and you're like, hey, you had to restate five years of financials. Clearly you had some deficiencies in your controls and procedures. And that is worth charging along with probably the fraud charge that you're getting. But that might be something you would dis- discuss. Now you see cases with fairly large penalties that do not have a fraud charge and in which the order says the SEC does not allege that there was anything wrong with what was reported, but we still find their internal controls and procedures to be deficient. Things could have been missed. Hmm. And that's a pretty astonishing change, really. And so it's a lot of talking with companies about, hey, what are you saying in your disclosures and what is your internal control and procedure behind that? Because that's a potential standalone charge now. It, it's interesting because it seems like there's a real focus on enforcing some level of corporate hygiene through these yeah. kinds of disclosure cases, right? So you're right. In the past, if there was a fraud case, I don't know, maybe you throw in a section 16 charge, but like that's not going to be the thing that bumps it above the fold, right? Right. But if you bring like, 10 section 16 cases lumped all together, all of a sudden we're talking about it on a podcast or Dave Michaels is writing an article about like, well, what's going on with these section 16 cases? So, I mean, I wonder if you think maybe that's something that's a little bit different with this commission, because I I do feel like they're starting to lump together cases that otherwise, I mean, they feel a little ticky tacky, if I'm being honest. Yes. Yes. I think that is exactly right. I mean, I think when viewed in the best light, you would say there's something of a sweep. They're maximizing staff time and resources and they're maximizing impact of those cases by announcing them together. So the market sees them, reacts to them, and they don't have to keep bringing more of them as opposed to just small settlements like that wouldn't even get a press press release normally. No one sees it. And if you are someone who believes that the SEC's actions affect the market and make the market better because people respond to them, as I think Chair Gensler believes, then that is the best way to do it. It's to find several, bundle them together, make a press release and have people see it. Because that is the only way that enforcement can speak to the market is through actions. And so you need them to be louder. And so I said, when when viewed in the best light, I, I do think that is his goal and that's what they're doing. I do think on an individual case level, when you're defense counsel trying to talk through an executive or company through that investigation, it can feel a little ticky tacky yeah. and that can be hard. It sounds to me like all these cases are really kind of reevaluating the 
letter of the law, if you will, in, in many cases. And, and like we said, in, in past instances, they may be added on to a charging decision or, or negotiated around, but here's really a focus on what's written and, and, and the interpretation of that and applying that to to the circumstance at hand. Now, to pivot into what I think is a, a diametrically opposed area in terms of enforcement regulation is, is the other topic, Kurt, you brought up, ESG. Mm-hmm. Right, this amorphous concept that I'd be Rebecca, please update me if I'm amiss to say that there's not an ESG standard out there from a rulemaking perspective yet. It seems that there's a lot of conversation, but not a lot of language where the rubber meets the road. So, where do you see kind of the ESG conversation from an enforcement perspective in today's commission and, and in your work today? So, the way I think about ESG right now is less about the E, even though that will, whenever the final rules come out, assumingly be a huge part of it, whether phase one, phase two, phase three, all of that, we don't know when we'll see the rules, presumably someday. Certainly, I would, I'm sure Chair Gumser wants them out before he leaves. The S and the G is really where I'm talking to clients, because I think that's an area that's very real. It's very much a priority right now, and it's not one that gets as much attention. And the S and the G, the social, the governance, the way I talk to clients about that is, how do you describe your company? How, what is the narrative that you're telling about your work, your people, your approach? If you say things like, we are committed to work, workforce, that's great. I would say that's probably the S. How are you committed to the workforce? What do you have that ensures that commitment is true and is yielding results? Is that really something that you are tracking? Do you know if you have a diverse workforce? Do you know if it changes? Do you know if it becomes more or less so over the course of your last reporting period? And if you don't know those things and you don't have a way to know those things, that cannot be in your public filing. That it's thinking of everything you write as something that needs to be supported as a potential disclosure case. And that's kind of how we're talking about the ESG. And on the E side, to the extent you are disclosing things you don't yet have to, but feel as a a company that makes sense for you to share, that's information your investors want to know, then that needs to be supported at the very highest level. And I think companies mostly now see that on the E, like their sustainability reports. If you're opting to disclose one of those, I do think there's a lot more care in the last year than there maybe were in prior years on making sure everything you're saying in that has support. But I think the SEC has brought several cases in the last year. The McDonald's case comes to mind. I mean, that had a huge fine because a CEO was having allegedly inappropriate relationships with employees. But they were saying the company didn't disclose his departure properly. It's pretty traditional for companies to all say like, oh, we parted ways. Everyone loved each other. It's all fine. But the SEC found that was a misleading statement that the company made a decision in the way they characterized his departure that affected how much his, I think, bonus or RSUs he was able to to keep. And that was a disclosure violation. And you need to think about that. And that, I think, would probably be the G in the ESG. But it's really having companies think about even in whole sections of filings with no numbers, they need to be just as rigorously supported and have internal controls and procedures around how that information comes to the top. And that's where I would focus now, especially because we don't have guidance on the E yet. So be thinking about it, but they're looking at this right now. And the cases that they've, the SEC has put out that they have said are part of the ESG task force or ESG initiatives, they're just disclosure cases. They are saying something was mis- misleading or o- omitted to end up giving a mis- misleading perspective to the public. So the way you talk about the social aspects of your company and the governance aspects of your company 
need to be as rigorous as your financial results. Yeah, completely agree. It's interesting, I think, to see how it's developing over time. But I, I mean, they really are just disclosure cases for the time being. So again, kind of back to corporate hygiene, companies, clients need to keep doing what they should have been doing all along in terms of making sure that what they're disclosing publicly to the market is complete and accurate and, and all of those things. Um, but a developing space that we'll have to keep our eye on. It is. I feel like we're seeing fewer accounting restatement cases. I mean, they're definitely still out there, but that's an area where over time, post socks companies have really tightened up their financial mm-hmm. re- reporting. And now I think we're going to start seeing that more and more with these dis- descriptive areas that are now kind of being pulled into dis- disclosure cases. And one other case, I'm sure I've People who are uh, as into the securities world as we all are saw, but the (laughs) Activision Blizzard case, I mean, that was a $35 million penalty for a 13A, 15A charge about disclosures that they said weren't actually misleading, but because they talked about the importance of attracting and retaining a strong workforce, information about employee reviews and feedback has to trickle all the way up to the disclosure level, and it didn't. Now, there was more going on in that case, but at its core, they're saying, you say, your hiring and retention is important, but information about how employees feel about the company didn't make its way up in the disclosure line, in the reporting line, and therefore you could have missed important information that should have been shared. I mean, that really should be a company's think about how information gets to the, whether it's a this disclosure committee or the people signing certs, but Think about what you're saying and do you have the information behind it to be able to say that. Sounds to me, Rebecca, that you you think us accountants now are doing great with the numbers, but we need to do a little bit more on the words, which (laughs) I don't know if you'll find a CPA out there who thinks differently in terms of where our strengths lie and where they should go. But we're always interested in hearing more about where the commission sits and and where we might be going. And, And thank you today for sharing that perspective, knowing your timeliness, Rebecca, if not your expertise as well in both of those areas. We really appreciate it. This has been great. Nothing more fun than chatting about uh, the securities (laughs) law world and the SEC. We love it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Rebecca Fike of Vincent & Elkins. We always love to hear from our listeners. Look for us on social media to share your thoughts and comments or topics you'd like us to explore on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on X or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Insecurities wherever you listen to podcasts. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. 
These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.